you have your Bibles, you can turn to Leviticus chapter 9. So Leviticus 9, we're going to read verses 1 to 24. Listen now, this is God's word. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a bird offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And say to the people of Israel, Take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf for a lamb, uh, a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish, for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for a peace for peace offerings to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil. For today the Lord will appear to you. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. Verse 15, Then Aaron presented the people's offering and took the goat of the sin offering that was for the people and killed it and offered it as a sin offering. And he presented the burnt offering and offered it according to the rule. Verse 18, Then he killed the ox and the ram, the sacrifice of peace offerings for the people. Verse 22, Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar, and when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. This is God's word. Okay, so we are in a series called A Life of Worship. And today we're going to be looking at something that is that, that spans the whole of Scripture. Okay, what I'm going to give to you is um, an understanding of how worship works. Um, the next phase of our series on worship is going to be dealing specifically with why we do what we do in Sunday worship and how Sunday worship informs the rhythm of our worship of God every day of our lives. And so today we're going to look at what worship is. What is corporate worship? You know, if you've been around the church at all, uh, if you've visited different churches, you'll see that there's a lot of disagreements in the church about what ought to be done on a Sunday or even on a Saturday or when, you know, what day to have a service. And so we're going to be looking and, and at this passage in Leviticus and understanding exactly what God expects of worship, okay, what God expects in terms of corporate worship. And so I want to start by just asking you some questions, okay? Just getting you some questions that will lead us to looking at what worship is. Do you ever wonder where you stand with God? Do you ever wonder really just what God thinks of you? You know, how God feels about you, what his opinion of you is? Do you ever wonder about that? Do you ever wonder if God will give you what you need to grow? Right, so I know so many of us were struggling with some. You ever wonder if God's going to ever give you what you need so that you can kind of get over the hump? Have you ever wondered, or I mean, I guess, um, you know, if you've ever answered yes to any of those questions, then this sermon is for you. Worship, specifically Sunday worship, is for you. Okay, if you have ever felt lonely, unsure. If you've ever felt spiritually weak or dirty or excluded, then you need to understand worship and what goes on in the church. Okay, that's where we're going. That's how pervasive an understanding of what goes on on Sundays in worship 
is for our lives. Okay, and so we're going to see this uh, in three points today if you want to take notes. Um, Our three points are that the Bible is all about God's covenant. Okay, first point, the Bible is all about God's covenant. Second, Old Testament worship is all about covenant renewal. And then third, New Testament worship is all about covenant renewal. Okay, and so we'll come back to those as we hit them. First, our point um, that the Bible is all about God's covenant. Okay, before we actually look in particular at the Leviticus passage, we need to understand a little bit more about the Bible's view of covenants. Okay, Um, covenants are everywhere in the Bible. Okay, Um, someone wrote this down, which just encapsulates all of this. There are covenant in the Bible, there are covenant making rituals, there are covenant documents, covenant laws, covenant signs, covenant meals, covenant mediators, covenant sacrifices, covenant memorials, covenant promises, covenant curses, covenant blessings, and covenant witnesses. Okay, from beginning to end, the Bible is about God's covenant. Okay, it's about God's covenant with people. Even in our own series, we've seen that God is holy. We've seen that God is love. In order for God to bring those things together and have a relationship with us, there needs to be a covenant. God needs to enter into covenant with us. God's holiness and his love come together in the covenant. Okay, and so the Bible as a whole is organized by covenants. Okay, there's something that's called covenant theology, which is basically just understanding the reality that as God has revealed himself, what, the, the, the Roman numerals in terms of the outline of the Bible is dictated by God's covenants. His covenant with Adam before the fall. His covenant with Adam after the fall. The covenant with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, with David, and then with Jesus. The covenants are what structure the Bible. Okay, And in the Bible we see examples of both covenant documents and covenant ceremonies. Okay? So let me give you some examples. They're they're there in your bulletin. Um, Deuteronomy and Matthew, these are two books of the Bible that are actually covenant documents. Okay? They tell portions of the Bible story, but they are structured like, like contracts almost. Okay? They are covenant documents. Um, You can see the outlines there um, and how they're broken down. Um, Joshua chapter 24. So just one chapter of Joshua is an actual covenant ceremony. Okay, if you read that chapter, the outline again there is in the bulletin. If you read that chapter, you'll see um, an actual covenant renewal ceremony that goes on between God and his people. And so where we see the ceremony or where we have the document, Here's what's interesting is that all the covenants in the Bible, all the covenant ceremonies in the Bible, they follow the same five-fold pattern. Okay? So this is significant. Okay? It, it follows the same pattern. There are five stages to the covenants that God makes with people. Okay? And those five stages are, are there uh, on, this, on this insert here. They're also there in the bulletin. But they're on this insert here. You have the preamble. Then you have the old to new section. Then you have the section of gospel life. Then consequences. And then the future. Okay? The preamble is really the... It establishes authority. Okay? And in the preamble, everywhere we see this, we see that God is the one in authority. 
right? God is holy. He is other. He is God. We're not. So he's the one in authority. He sets the rules. He initiates the covenant. Okay, and we see that in the preamble section. In the old, the new, what we see is grace. Grace. In this section of the covenant, it rehearses what God has done for his people, blessing them, giving them a new start. And so this section talks about really why you shouldn't have a problem that it's God who sets the rules. Okay, preamble, God sets the rules. Grace teaches you why. That's a good thing. Okay, the third section of the covenant is called gospel life. And in this section of the covenant, it describes the new life that's possible if you live according to God's blessings. So if you live according to the blessings, if you receive the blessings of God and walk in relationship with him, this is the life that results. Then the fourth section are the consequences. These are the outcomes. And these show the blessings or the curses that come whether or not you follow the gospel life. Okay, and then the, the last section of the covenant is the future. And this discusses how the covenant will continue on. Okay, what's going to happen next? Is there a future for this covenant? So what's the point of this? Really two main things. Okay, there's two main things to understanding this five-fold structure of God's covenants. Really, the first is that when God loves, he promises. Okay? I mean, that's really what a covenant is. It's a promise. When God loves, he promises. And God promises his love through the covenant. And so, what we see here then, the second thing, is that this tells you exactly where you stand with God. God doesn't want anybody to wonder where they stand with him. They want, God wants everyone to know, are you in a relationship with me or not? Let me explain what a relationship with me is like. What does it look like? What are the effects of it? And then if you choose to be in relationship with me, if you choose to respond and enter into covenant with me, then this is what it looks like. And if you don't, here are the consequences. So we see that God wants to be very, very clear. You know, um, resident theologian Jim Hopkins um, had this to say. Um, He said, you know what bugs me about some people who talk about the covenants? Okay, he said they talk like God loves us because of the covenant instead of saying that God gave us the covenant because he loves us. Okay, and sometimes we can get that backwards. You know, the covenant that God has established is an expression of his love because when God loves, he promises. He doesn't want you to wonder but he actually, he commits to loving. He promises his love and he guarantees it in a covenant. So that's our first point, that the Bible is all about God's covenant. Our second point is that Old Testament worship is all about covenant renewal. So again, the five stages of the covenant, that might sound interesting. You might begin to understand some of the practical basis for that. But what does it have to do with worship, right? Right? I mean, how does that fit in with Sunday worship? Well, when we see, it's funny, when God instructs his people in how to worship, worship follows the exact same five-fold pattern. The five stages of the covenant actually show up in corporate worship. Okay, Leviticus 9, this passage, this is the, the launch service for the tabernacle. Okay, this is the inaugural worship service that took place in God's tabernacle. 
and it follows the same pattern. You look at verse 1. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. You see there that God, through Moses, is calling the people to himself. Okay, and so, again, God initiates. He is the one who calls people. And so we see his authority there through his servant, Moses, because Moses mediated between God and the people. But then you look at verse 15, the second stage of the covenant. They presented a sin offering. Okay, the first thing that they did was offer a sin offering. Now, that sacrifice brought forgiveness. Okay, it was offered to cleanse people from their sins. And so, again, this shows grace. It shows the movement from old to new, from dirty to clean, right? From guilty to forgiven. Well, then third, in verse 16, we see that the next offering that they offered was the burnt offering. Okay, now, this, what was unique about this sacrifice was that it was offered, like all the sacrifices were offered on the altar, and then they did different things with different parts of the sacrifices, okay? With the burnt offering, they would put it up on the altar, and it, in its entirety, was consumed, okay? When you think about the altar, you want to think about religious stuff, but you also want to think about a barbecue, okay? When you barbecue, you want to think about Israel's worship in the Old Testament, because it can remind you of a lot of things, Um, And so this burnt offering was entirely consumed on the altar. None of the pieces were taken down. It was all, I mean, the picture is that it all went up into heaven in smoke, okay, that it ascended into heaven. And so what does that mean? It meant that it it was symbolic of full devotion, of being totally consecrated to God. God got it all, okay? And so In offering the burnt offering, the people of Israel, the offerers, they were saying that they were going to devote themselves fully to God in their lives. Okay? This looks very much like the gospel life that's described in the third stage of the covenant. Okay? Then verse 18, we see that they did a peace offering next. Now, what was unique about the peace, this was a sacrifice that brought peace. And this was split up. We've talked about this at times in the past. A portion of this offering was consumed on the altar. It ascended and went up to God. But then a portion of it was given to the priest. And then another portion of it was given back to the worshiper. And so you want to think of like a big juicy steak that's on the grill. And then they cut it into three parts. God got some of it, ate some of it. The priest got some of it. And then the worshiper got to eat some of it. What's the image there? This is family. These are, this is a family eating dinner together. That's the picture. And so, of course, that brings peace. You know, especially in the ancient Near East, but even today, when you have someone in your home and you have a meal with them, you're treating them like family. And that was what God was telling the people. It was this amazing picture of everybody eating together, meaning that they're all family. Okay? And then the service ends with Aaron, verse 22, lifting up his hands toward the people and blessing them. And so this was an assurance of God's favor. God sent his people out from this worship experience with, um, with confidence in his love and in his blessing. And so what we see here is that we, when we make the parallels between worship and the stages of the covenant, what we recognize, what we conclude is that God has made worship to be a covenant renewal ceremony. 
Okay, that's the purpose of worship. God wants to give people a chance to rehearse and experience the blessings of being in a relationship with him every time they worship. Okay? That's what worship is. That's what we do here when we're gathered. We'll talk more about that in our third point. But the idea is that God wants us. That's what God wants us to experience. Okay? So an incredible illustration of this, um, or of this dynamic, and coming to this understanding. Um, we saw Toy Story 3 yesterday. Okay? Just came out. Highly recommended. So I'm, you know, I'm in my 30s, and man, I tell you, this is a great movie. Is a great movie. So you have, in the, in the movie, all the toys, they're trapped in this daycare center, okay? And they're striving to get back to Andy's room, right? He's their owner, and they're trying to get there before he leaves for college. And so there's all this drama and tension. Are they going to make it? And Mrs. Potato Head has been struggling, okay? You remember the Potato Head, you know, potato thing with holes everywhere? You can, eyes and ears and hats and noses, you can bend them in so many poses, right? Um, so... Mrs. Potato Head is running around the whole movie with one eye, okay? She can't find the eye. It was left underneath another toy or the book or the toy box or whatever in Andy's room. Well, at one point in the movie, she realizes that, so she's walking with one eye. She realizes that if she covers her eye, that she can actually see through the other eye in Andy's room. And so they get, it's like they get inside information. They know sort of what's going on. You know, back where they're, you know, in their homeland, back in Andy's room where it's safe, where they, you know, they're there. And so they can get updates. As long as she closes her eye, she can see through this other eye and she can tell everybody else what's going on back in Andy's room. Okay, when you understand that worship is covenant renewal, it enables you in some ways to close your eye and not see a theater, not see a screen, not see any clutter. You close that eye, and what opens up for you is your eye in heaven. And you get a chance to see what God sees in corporate worship. You get a chance to see what we're doing from God's perspective. That what God is doing for you each and every Sunday is he is inviting you to rehearse and re-experience the blessings of being in a relationship with him. And so you're reminded that he initiates. You're reminded of his grace. You're reminded of real life, like joy-filled life. You're reminded of peace. You know, and then God sends you back out. I mean, that's, that's amazing. Like, that is truly amazing. When you get God's perspective, it helps us. It helps us to actually worship when we know what we're supposed to be doing or what's supposed to be happening to us. And so... If you come into worship on Sundays feeling dejected, dirty, confused, unsure, directionless, if you feel one of those things or all of them at the same time, God's perspective is that worship is designed to make you feel important, clean, smart, confident, and then sent back out with a purpose. That's what's supposed to be happening on Sundays. That's what we strive to make happen. And that's what we as a family need to see happening in each of our lives every single Sunday that we gather. One author said this, On Sundays, God calls us together, cleans us up, 
tells us how to live, fuels us for service in his kingdom by his grace, and then sends us forth to do his work. That's what it is. You come in, you have an experience with God, and then you go back out stronger, cleaner, smarter, with greater sense of purpose. I had a chance to teach on this in another, in another situation. And after teaching, someone just came up and told me, wow, I now understand that worship is a conversation. It's a conversation. It's back and forth between God and us. He calls, we respond. We confess, he forgives. We devote ourselves to him and he gives us his peace. And then he sends us back out with his blessing so that we can be sure of his blessing and we can live for him. Do you understand that? Boy, that just changes everything about how we see worship. And we're taught this this from the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 9. So that's our second point. The Old Testament worship is all about covenant renewal. What does that mean about New Testament worship? That's our third point. New Testament worship is also all about covenant renewal. Okay, because when Jesus shows up, He changes everything, right? We know that. The gospel changes everything. But it doesn't necessarily get rid of everything in the Old Testament. Okay? The reason that there is no liturgy, there's no order of service in the New Testament, the reason there's no explicit direction for how to conduct a worship service is because, well, frankly, God made it really clear in the Old. And so what's happened is that uh, this worship service from Leviticus was in place for thousands of years. And when Jesus shows up, he does change everything. Everything is transformed by him. But we have to understand how that transformation works. Okay? When Jesus comes, it's like the relationship of, it's like sunlight passing through a prism. Right? The white light of the sun hits the prism and then it comes out in this multicolored, rich, beautiful picture. Right? It's the rainbow that comes out. Well, Jesus is like that. And when we take the worship of the Old Testament and pass that through the work of Jesus, what comes out is really beautiful. It's really beautiful. Preamble, right? the first stage of the covenant becomes calling. Right? It's God who initiates, and he calls us into his presence. Right? As I go through this, you're going to see that there we actually have what we do on Sunday worship. You'll see that what we do fits into this same pattern. Right? The old to new, the sin offering from the Old Testament becomes our cleansing. Right? So no longer the sin offering, but it's a rehearsal of the forgiveness that comes through Jesus. Third, gospel life. The burnt offering from the Old Testament, that burnt offering of consecration becomes you know, what I call constitution because we focus on the Bible, on it being read and preached. That is our constitution as God's people and it teaches us how to be consecrated to God. Right? How can we be righteous in his sight? How can we live more righteously? Both those things come from the scriptures. Then in terms of the consequences, the fourth stage, the peace offering becomes communion. Becomes the Lord's Supper, which shows that we are God's family. That's where God gives us assurance and strength and peace. 
And then in terms of the future, the benediction becomes a commission, right? It's the blessing of God. It's designed to fill us with himself and then remind us of our role in his world, right? He's calling us to love each other, to be a family, and then to love those around us. And so that's what comes out as we put the work of Jesus in to this understanding of the five stages of the covenant. Now, why does this matter? Like, what's the payoff of this? I mean, a few things. First, worship then, when you see it in this way, it shows us the full scope of the gospel. It shows us that, yes, the gospel cleanses us from our sins, and it makes us important to God. It makes us wise. It makes us strong, and it gives us purpose. You know, somebody said... You know, this is amazing because the gospel is actually woven into the service itself. Okay? And so you can see the flow of the gospel in the service. And I think, so I mean, secondly, when you see the elements of our liturgy in these five categories, if you understand that this is what we're doing, what we're rehearsing, it helps you actually participate more in worship. Because you understand that the songs that we sing right after the call, are different than the songs that we sing after we confess our sins. Like, you'll notice that. The song we sing at the end is different from the songs that we sing throughout the service. And we're going to talk all about this as we go through the elements of our service in the weeks to come. But, I mean, just for instance, you know, the sermon, it's more than just wise advice or pious platitudes or insights for living, right? That's not just what a sermon is. Like, the sermon isn't just an explanation of a passage of Scripture. Okay, the sermon, we preach a sermon on Sundays because that's when God is reminding his people of who they are in Christ. Right? God is constituting his people. He's reminding them of, he's reminding you of who you are and then also who you are to be in his world. And again, we're going to go through this in the coming weeks. This reminded me, again, of, of another movie that just came out, although I haven't seen it yet, The Karate Kid. Okay, I haven't seen the new one, but the old one I remember, you know, from, I don't know, 20 years ago or so. Um, and how many of you have seen that movie? The old one, yeah, yeah, the old one, not the new one. Uh, new one, okay. Um, I, the old movie is just a great movie. I mean, and the best scene in the movie was that moment where Daniel, the kid, finally understood why he was doing what he was doing, okay? If you remember Mr. Miyagi, the karate master, right? He had Daniel. He said, yeah, yeah, I'll train you. I'll, I'll make you a karate man. And, um, and then he had Daniel wax his cars, right? Wax on, wax off, wax on, wax off all day long. End of the day, he's exhausted. You know, Miyagi says, come back tomorrow. Next day he comes. He paints the fence, right? Next day he comes. He spends the entire day sanding the floors, Right? Next day he comes, he spends the entire day painting the, painting the sides of his house, right, side to side, right? And he's frustrated, he's livid, he finally gives up in exasperation. He says, you've taught me nothing. You've taught me, I've been your slave ever since you brought me here, right? What, I'm doing, I'm your janitor here. What, what in the world? This isn't karate. What are you kidding me? And then the magic happened, right? You remember that scene? Mr. Miyagi then shows Daniel how every chore that he had made Daniel do all day long was actually a karate move. 
that all the waxing on and the waxing off that Daniel would be doing was a way to block an opponent when he punched. Right? The sanding of the floor was to block the kicks. And you had this really amazing, dramatic scene. You know, Daniel thought he was just going through the motions, but he was actually learning karate. And he was actually good at it. You're already experiencing that, hopefully, in this sermon. But you're going to have that same experience week after week as we go through what we do in our covenant renewal ceremony with the Lord every Sunday. I mean, that's what we're aiming for. And so we're going to talk about not only how this affects our Sunday worship, but every week we're also going to talk about how does this affect us Monday through, Saturday, Monday through Saturday, right? What about the rest of our lives? And you're going to see that it will have a huge impact on every day that you live because what's true on Sunday, it's true the rest of the week, okay? So when you think about even the five stages of the covenant, and how that informs covenant renewal worship. Tomorrow, when you wake up, you're still in covenant with God. Right? God still calls you. In fact, your waking up is in one sense a call from God. It's a little mini resurrection. God calls you life from the dead. For some of you, it's a slow resurrection. <laughs> <laughs> Every morning, tomorrow, just tomorrow when you wake up, God calls you. He cleanses you. He reminds you that you belong to him. You're one of his children. He is your father. He gives you the strength of his grace. And then he commissions you to live for him. When you get to work, you are in covenant with God. If you stay home, you are in covenant with God. And so if you don't know what to do with your personal time. I know there are times where I'm really focused and know exactly what I, what I want to read or what I want to pray about. And then there's times where I just flounder. Um, if you don't know what to do with your own personal time with God during the day, in the morning, in the evening, whenever you have it, just rehearse this. God, you called me. God, you called me. Wow. You've called me to be in a relationship with you. Thank you. And God, you've, you've cleansed me from my sins. Thank you for Jesus. I know my cleansing isn't based on my performance. I know it's not based on me being good enough, because I'm not. But you cleanse me because of Jesus. Because it is death and resurrection. And then God, you're calling me to be one of your people. Let me think a little bit about what that means, Lord. Can you teach me what that's going to mean for me today? I've got this coming up, Lord. Could you help me? What would it look like for me to be constituted as one of your people? Anything in your scriptures that might help me think about how to handle this day? You walk through, Lord, I need your strength. I need to commune with you. This can't just be going through the motions. Lord, I need you to give me Jesus. I need his love and his patience. I need his wisdom today. I need your strength so that I can... Be your, per, you know, your, a, a, a person for you today. And then, God, as I go, I want to go with your blessing, with your commission in my life, so that I'll remember that I'm serving you every moment of today. You can say that in the morning. You can say that in the afternoon. You can say that all day long. Just remember the five C's. Calling, cleansing, constitution, communion, commission. 
Sunday worship becomes then really the steering wheel of our lives. It can actually inform the daily rhythm of our walk with God. And I think that's how he wants to set it up. You know, the first day of the week is supposed to set the tone for the rest of the week. And God wants you to be here so that he can help remind you of how to be in relationship with him Monday through Saturday. I'm reading a book called The Book of the Dun Cow, D-U-N, and it speaks of a time when animals could talk and a rooster ruled over, this rooster named Chanticleer ruled the land. And a major part of how he ruled the land, this is interesting, um, was through his crows. Okay, he would crow, he's a rooster, so he would crow throughout the day and that was one of the ways that he ruled the land. This is what the book says. This is amazing. He used these crows at certain special hours during the day. They were his canonical crows. They told all the world, or at least the section of the world over which he was Lord, what time it was, and they blessed the moment in the ears of the hearer. They made the day and that moment of the day familiar. His crows gave it direction and meaning and a proper soul. For the creatures expected his canonical crows and were put at peace when they heard them. They were grateful that by his crow the day should hold no strangeness nor fear for them. It was a comfort to be able to measure the day and the work within it. Seven times a day, dutifully, with a deep sense of their importance, and by the immemorial command of the divine, Chanticleer crowed his canonical crows. And when he crowed his canonical crows, the day wore the right kind of clothes. His hens lived and scratched in peace, happy with what was and unafraid of what was to be. Even the wrong things were made right and the gray things were explained. I mean, pardon me for asking you to identify with you know, the agricultural, but... Like, that's amazing, right? You just picture this rooster who is declaring all things right with his crows. He is establishing a daily rhythm that everyone can follow after. Brothers and sisters, the canonical crows of the gospel are calling, cleansing, constitution, communion, and commission. Sunday and every day. And these crows are all the more meaningful because Jesus is now the one who speaks them out. It's Jesus who calls you to himself, right? It's Jesus who cleanses you by his cross and resurrection. It's he who has lived the perfect life of devotion for you so that you can find grace and so that you can find, it's he who strengthens you so that you'll have what you need to live the gospel, grace-renewed life. And then it's Jesus whose hands you should see outstretched, pronouncing his blessing on you. Those are his crows, and these are the things, these are the things that make us happy with what is and unafraid of what is to be. These are also the crows that make even the wrong things right. And they, ex- and they make the gray things explained. 
This is what Jesus offers in terms of a relationship with him. If you're a Christian today and you're in relationship with him, Jesus wants to continue to bless you. Every one of these five C's brings a unique blessing of the gospel. Jesus wants you to expand and grow so that you would be fed by our worship service. And so you want to think through the struggles of your life, the issues that you struggle, the, the things that are difficult, and ask yourself, well, do I need a greater sense of his calling? Do I need a greater sense of his cleansing? Do I need a greater sense of his constitution or maybe communion with him? Right? Or do I need to be reminded of his commission to me? Right? As we go deeper and deeper into the gospel, Jesus gets more and more into our lives. He reaches into more and more areas with his blessing. And so if you're a Christian here today, let, let him in. Let him into every area of your life and let him rule. And if you're not a Christian yet, boy, don't you want this? I mean, this brings to me a rock-solid steadfastness into my life. This makes me unafraid of what I don't know. This makes me unafraid of the future, not because everything's going to work out, but because Jesus is in control. Because he is the one who has passed through death into new life, and he's brought that new life into our hearts. If you've been living apart from Jesus, I'd invite you to to turn. The Bible calls it repentance and to orient your life around Jesus. Just say to him, Jesus, I have lived too long apart from you, and I want to come back. I hear your call, and I need your cleansing. Cleanse me with your blood. Give me your forgiveness, and then help make me a new creature so that I can follow you. That's it. That's all you have to do. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do give you our hearts. Even now, as we have heard you speak through this sermon and through this text in Scripture, we want to consecrate ourselves to you. We want to be that burnt offering, fully devoted. We want to respond to your word and say that we are in. Thank you for being our God and our Savior. Thank you for coming to live for us, to die for us, so that we might be in relationship with you. Thank you that when you love, you promise, and that we can take your promise to the bank. And Jesus, would you call now those who don't know you? Would you show them that you are, that you're good, so that they might let you in, that they might repent and give themselves to you? We pray this, giving you all the glory in your name. Amen.